1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Brack, and today we have a fascinating show all about never giving up, persevering, and being a champion and championing others. And on the show, we have two phenomenal guests. First up, three-time Paralympian gold medalist, motivational speaker, and arguably the greatest sledge hockey goalie in history. Paul Rosen will be on the program with his brand new inspirational book, and I have it right here. As you can see, very dog-eared. I've been reading it like crazy. Never give up. And later on, you'll meet the incredibly talented 18-year-old singer-songwriter Sage Siegel with an original song called Finish Line from her upcoming EP. She is a rising star, and we're so happy to have Have her on the show today. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Paul Rosen. Paul Rosie Rosen is unquestionably one of the greatest sledge hockey goalies in history and one of the few athletes to medal in international summer and winter games. He was presented with a Queen's Diamond Jubilee medal, wow, in 2013 by the Prime Minister of Canada and Ontario's Lieutenant Governor for his many contributions even outside of Canadian Athletics. Paul Rosen's childhood dream mirrored the fantasy of virtually every young boy growing up in Canada, and that was to play in the National Hockey League. I should probably say, and girl too. Rosie, as he was affectionately called, was well on his way to making that dream come true when at age 15, he broke his leg in 14 places during a tournament. Shattering not only his leg, but his hopes of playing professional hockey, he endured 38 surgeries, imagine, 38 surgeries over a 20-year period until finally his leg gave out when he was coming home from coaching in an overseas tournament. He had to have his leg amputated in order to survive. From that moment on, Paul Rosen's purpose would change forever and he began finding the true meaning of his life. After this operation, he learned how to play sledge hockey at age 40, becoming one of the best goalies in the world. He played in three Paralympics and shut out the number one ranked Team Norway in the gold medal game of the 2006 Torino Paralympic Games. Rosie even has five hockey world championships and a bronze medal in sitting volleyball from the summer 2007 Pan Am Games in Brazil. In addition to being a world-class athlete, Paul has also given over 1,100 motivational talks, and has become a recognized ability advocate for the differently abled. Paul regularly visits schools and mentors children and their parents in the hospital. So what happened to change all of this? In 2019, on Bell Let's Talk Day, Paul was sick of the pain and suffering he was undergoing physically. And on that fateful night, he wrote three goodbye letters to each of his children and then took 35 OxyContin pills to end his life. But he was also the one who made the 911 call that saved his own life. He's here to share his story and help break the stigma around suicide, depression, and addiction. He is about to celebrate three years of sobriety, and he is also determined to continue helping others. Never Give Up is not only the meaning of Paul Rosen's life, it is also the title of the book he wrote with famed sports author Roger Lajoie in 2021. This candid biography and its message is ultimately one of hope, recovery, and survival, and he is determined to share his message and the idea of never giving up. Paul, welcome to Finding Your Bliss.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Judy. What a beautiful introduction.
1: Thank you. First of all, congratulations on your book, Never Give Up. I really found it so compelling that I stayed up till 4 a.m. for the last few nights reading it, and I'm really fascinated with your story. Can you take us back to the young boy, Paul Rosie Rosen, that you were and what it felt like to be such a great hockey player? What was the dream before you were 15 years old?
2: Well, I was very fortunate. I have a brother who's four years older than me. And when I was five and six, a lot of kids, they had to play with the, you know, the kids that are their age. And, and my brother, when I was 5, 6, he was you know, 9, 10, and I was a good hockey player, so I was allowed to play with them. So from the age of 5 till the age of 10, I always played with – players that were older and better than me. And so by the time I was 11, I thought, you know, I'm a fairly big kid. I was, I was born fairly big. I was almost 12 pounds. I was, I was a big kid. Um, my <laughs> mother used to remind me of that. And uh, I, um, I just used my, stri- I used my strength. I used my size. I was a good talker. I, I, I had a good shot. Uh, I had a personality that allowed me to let people let me in. Whether they wanted to or not. And so my dream was to, to be like every other young boy. And like you said, young girl, because it's extremely important. My message of ability through disability and my message through incredible athletes in this country, no matter whether what they are, women, men, non binary doesn't matter to me. The LGBT community is huge in my life. Um, just getting to, to strive for greatness, really.
1: Absolutely. And and you were always a very athletic kid. And that, that must be a good feeling, because when you're not, it doesn't feel so good. And so that must have been a very cool thing growing up. But at age 15, you had an accident that you really had to pay dearly for for the next 20 years. What happened that day when you were 15 years old?
2: Well, it was a tournament in Barrie, Ontario at the old Dunlop Arena. The arena has gone now. It's a fire hall there. And uh, I was coming around the net Um thousands of times. I was a right winger, not a goalie. I'm sure we'll get into that, how I became a goalie. My skate caught a rut in the ice, very fluky. But I, I'm a true believer that everything happens for a reason, especially in these last three years of my life. And a spiral fracture broke my leg. And back in 1975, an injury like that, that was the end. They, nobody wanted to, to deal with uh, anybody who had an injury. Like that. Nowadays, with the doctors and, and the way things can happen – might have been totally different, but it happened. There was a reason it happened. And, you know, my dad, who's 90 years old and still around, he was one of the guys who said to me, you're going to do something great with your life. We didn't know what, we didn't know when, we didn't know where, but we knew it was going to happen eventually.
1: Wow. For the next 20 years, you had 38 surgeries. How did you cope and survive having almost 40 operations as a hockey player? Like that must have just been brutal for you.
2: Well, it got to a point, uh, Judy, that I, it didn't really affect me. It affected my family, my kids. I was married at the time, my, my parents, to you know, w- We lived in Thornhill. I was always downtown at the Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, very rarely could people come down and see me. So I got to be friends with everybody else, the patients, the orderlies, the nurses. And, and I have such a respect for people that work in that field. Um, and I, at, at a point, and that's where my addiction started extremely bad because the pain was so bad that I could get anything I wanted. And, and at, at, at those moments of my life, I, I was just living day to day.
1: Mm, that's that, that's so, so difficult. And I, And I recently had, and this is not even close to what you've had, but I had an injury that uh, has required a surgery and another surgery on my hand where glass exploded in my left hand. And I've had nerve pain and the inability to bend the finger, straighten it, numbness, pain. And that's just a finger. So I can't even imagine a leg that you use specifically for your your life for that's what you do is play hockey and play sports and I I I can't imagine not just the physical pain but the emotional mental spiritual pain that would go along with that you were in a German airport when your leg gave out for the final time and in the book you talk about an Israeli doctor who said that in order to live you would have to amputate that leg in order to survive oh my goodness lord can you take us back to that fateful day and what happened
2: Sure. There was well, there was a, a span of, of two and a half years. So in 1997, uh, on the staff of the Israeli national hockey team coming back from Belgrade, Yugoslavia, in the in the uh, airport in Frankfurt, Germany, my leg gave out. That's when I came back to Canada, needed a knee replacement. The knee replacement got infected, and that was a journey up from uh, January of '97 until June of '99. And June of '99, when I traveled to Israel to a private hospital called Asuta, I met the most incredible doctor in the world, Itzhak Otrimsky, who unfortunately has passed away since to, due to cancer. And he was the one that basically said, you know, amputation is our only option. And I remember I have pictures in the book, which you'll see that there's a picture of me in a wheelchair. That's three months before at one of my son's dance competitions. And then the picture with my leg off is the day after the amputation. So landed in Israel on the 8th of June, 99. Got to have your leg amputated. The 9th of June, my leg's amputated. The 10th of June, I'm smiling, sitting in a hospital bed.
1: That's what I was going to ask you about, is there's a picture in the book of you smiling after your surgery. Had it not sunken in yet, or were you smiling on the outside for the public while you were crying on the inside?
2: Um, Well, I've been crying on the inside for many, many years, Judy. But what I think I understood on that day, the day after, was that I was going to live. I had to figure out how I was going to live and what I was going to do, but the pain had stopped. The pain that I had for years and years and years and years emotionally, physically, mentally, that pain stopped when the lead came up. Now, there was many other things that came after that, but I just remembered knowing that I was going to go home. I had a 15-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, and an 11-year-old daughter that didn't know whether their father was coming home or not.
1: Mm. So you were also smiling in that picture for them to show them, dad is okay. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to live. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did sledge hockey become a thing for you? How did that all evolve? And you already touched on how did you go from your original position to becoming a goalie and one of the most famous goalies in the world? How did that all happen?
2: So that was crazy. It was just a few months. I get back in June, and in September, I'm told about this incredible facility, Variety Village. I go to Variety Village. There's not a lot. I'm Jewish. There's not a lot of Jewish athletes out there, able body, especially disabled. And I meet this young man at Variety Village, Shane Smith, who's a triple amputee. He's 12 years old, and he's so excited to see a fellow Jewish Hmm. disabled guy who wants to play sports. And he was the one that told me about sled hockey. Uh, him and his mother came to Salt Lake City. My first games uh, were still dear friends to this day. Uh, he's 35 years old. Um, he just gave me, he said one thing to me, Judy, that really changed my life. He kind of saw me. Uh, I, I didn't have an artificial leg yet. He's in a chair and and he just looked at me and he said, you know, do you still have your heart? a hmm. Twelve-year-old triple amputee, and I said yes. And he said, Do "You still have your brain," and I said yes. And he wow. goes, so "What's the problem?" <laughs> and that was—I never, from that day, felt sorry for missing. I've had a lot of issues since th- that day in uh, nineteen ninety-nine, but never once have I felt sorry for myself for having one leg.
1: Wow, what—that's that's a phenomenal story. You've always been fiercely competitive. What do you think always drove you so relentlessly to succeed as a goalie and to succeed as an athlete? Like, especially when it came to sports, you have been driven relentlessly to win.
2: Yeah, I think there's two people. I think, number one, my dad, who uh, had a very limited education, but always was there for us, always taught us that no matter what you want to do in life, you can do it. If you strive for greatness, like somebody can tell you, you can't, it's up to you to decide whether you have that inner strength to go for it. You might not get it every time, but if you don't have that strength to go for it and give it everything you got. And then the other thing is Terry Fox, Terry Fox to me is the ultimate Canadian as a fellow amputee to, to be able to take something that's happened to you Mm -hmm. and put it aside for the betterment of other people. Mm-hmm. To show them that mindset is just one, th- you know, ability through disability and, and looking at somebody and seeing their heart and their desire and not the way they've turned out because they're missing a leg. They're in a chair or they look different. That That drives me every day.
1: Wow, I love that. I, I I understand that so so much. We're part of a beautiful community called Jake's Gem, with um, a number of people who are in wheelchairs and have disabilities. And my daughter's a singer, and she we she sings every Sunday with them for the last two years of COVID. And it's um it's just exactly what you've just said is what it has to be. And that's how people have to think you're very candid about not being successful in another part of your life. So you were always successful in sports and obviously in hockey. And we'll get more to all of the gold medals and all the wonderful things that happened to you. But even in the early years, um, as a father to your three children in your marriage, That wasn't the area that you were successful in. You were successful to succeed on the ice. And you've confessed that for many years you gave more attention and commitment to a young hockey player named Max Beerbrier than even to your own family. What was it about Max that made you want to help him and protect him and mentor him so intensely?
2: Well, when I had the opportunity in 1997 to be a part of the Israeli junior team and travel to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, I saw this 15-year-old boy from Kazakhstan, who had so much talent and so much drive, but unfortunately, he had he he didn't have the ability to 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 play in Israel. It wasn't going to uh, uh, ex- extend his hockey career. He didn't have the proper equipment. He needed mentoring, and I fell in love with this young man, and he fell in love with me. And I brought him, and you know, God bless my ex-wife. I brought him home, and he lived with us. And, and while I was sick, he's still, I'm in the hospital. He's still staying at the house with, with my family. <laughs> wow. And uh, they fell in love with him too. But it hurt my kids more than anything because they saw me. And then when I made the Canadian team, they saw me being more of Paul Rosen to the world and not Paul Rosen the father. And, um, and I'm very candid about that. I, I don't think I was a very good father.
1: And I, and I think you I think that is all starting to change, and we'll get to that soon. But what was it like making the Canadian national team for sledge hockey? That must have been a trip.
2: Uh, not only was it a trip, it was to do it at 40 years old.
1: Hmm.
3: You know, we
2: had, my roommate was 17 years old, my first trip to Oslo, Norway. Wow. Uh, yeah, the bulk of the guys on the team were, my oldest, Stephanie, was only a few years younger than them. Uh, and even to this day... Uh, I don't think anybody's going to make the team or have the impact at the age I did. I played from 40 to 50, which is there was times my body did not want me to be doing what I was doing. Wow.
1: You played, you didn't just play, you played and won in three Paralympic Games. I mean, that just, I almost have to pause and let that just sink in for people. That's pretty huge. Is there a moment that stands out for you? And I'm sure there were many, but one that stands out for you as one of the epiphanies of your career.
2: Winning the gold in Torino, we had no chance. We were given no chance. The uh, Norwegians were so much better in 2006. I was 46 years old. Not only did we win, but I got the first shutout in the in history of Canada. Since then, Shannon Zabados for the women's team got a shutout in, in Vancouver and in Tochi. And Carey Price for the men got a shutout in Sochi. But in the Hockey Hall of Fame, my mask from, this is my jersey from Torino, <laughs> from that game, that gold medal game. Wow. And my mask, is, my mask is hanging in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and people see it, and they call me and tell me I can't believe it. And then there's a plaque there, and it's the first ever shutout in the history of Canada. There can be many more, but there can only be one first.
1: Wow. Wow. And I love that moment in the book where you talk about they ripped your mask off of you to go hang it up in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Like, that's fabulous. You've always faced adversity, though. Like, even losing your leg. I mean, my goodness, that it doesn't get much worse than that. And then overcoming everything to become one of the greatest goalies in Paralympic Games history, winning multiple world championship titles with Team Canada, the gold medal that you've just referred to, which is like a wow at the Olympics. But there is such a heartbreaking chapter in the book about what happened years later when your gold medal was stolen at the Downsview Arena. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about what happened? That's brutal.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was down to Park. It was almost exactly a year. It was in February of 2007. So coming up on a year, I did a ton of charity events. I took the medal everywhere. It was down to Park. Uh there was a bunch of gold medals on a table being secured. A lot of people there. Um Cheryl Pounder from the women's team who's also an incredible broadcaster, a uh, lover to death. She said, "Rosie, we're packing up. Where's your medal?" I said, "It's beside yours." That's when we realized that somebody must have picked it up and ran away. Uh, She called Cassie Campbell, who Cassie's husband, uh, Brad Paschal, was running our team. She talked to Don Cherry, who Don was a friend of mine. We did a lot of things with the military community. That night on Coach's Corner, Don said, the rat who stole Rosie's medal put it in a mailbox. The police won't be involved. The following Saturday, I got a call from 32 Division that the the, uh, uh, medal – was found at Central Sorting on Eastern Avenue downtown, and the rest is history.
1: And the parking lot of that police station had throngs of press and people, and and I think the police were, "What is this?" Because everybody wanted you to get that well deserved medal back safe and sound, which you did, thank goodness.
2: The saddest part is there was so many people that were driving by that thought that was a like there was a big murder or something was going on. They had no clue that it was a uh, you know and and one of the hardest things for me is I went on Canada AM uh, with Seamus O'Regan like three times that week. And the one time there was a, a young boy who was who was killed in Mexico, and his parents were in the green room with me, and here I'm there celebrating getting my medal back mm-hmm. and that's when things get in perspective of the way this world is, especially now is you know, sports is incredible, but there's so many other things this journey of life takes us on.
1: Absolutely. Throughout the book, you're very candid about your addiction to drugs and alcohol, which you, as, as you said earlier, you took to cope with the constant pain in your leg. Did it also become a way to cope with the dichotomy that you always felt of being so loved and adored by the public who loved you as an athlete, as a gold medalist, later as a motivational speaker and a broadcaster, but when you were alone without the adoration, you felt like you were living a lie? Can you tell us more about what you think this addiction was all about?
2: That's the biggest problem. And that's the biggest problem with addiction, especially addiction and people. Now we're going, we're looking so much with hockey and so many hockey players that are coming out now, because you live two lives, Judy, my life of 10,000 people screaming and yelling my name in a in a major games, or doing an event and kids coming up and tell me I'm their hero and signing autographs. And then you get to your little apartment by yourself. I, I, I was single and, and, and alone for a long time. And you just wonder why, why do people care about you? What is so great about you? And you get this inner strength, this almost inner hate that you just, you're living a lie, you can't survive and and drugs and alcohol are your best friend because they take you away. They take you to a place that you're safe, even though you're, you're not safe whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest thing for me, and this is, not I'm coming up January 30th, will be three years clean and sober from the mm-hmm. day I got went into the hospital. It's asking for help. That was the hardest thing mm-hmm. in the world was to ask for help, admit I had a problem, and then let everybody who thought the great Paul Rosen mm-hmm. could do anything know that the great Paul Rosen still has a lot of greatness in him. But he has a lot of fear in him and he has a lot of things that need to get out and be helped.
1: Absolutely. And also Paul Rosen is human. And I think that that was because you were superhuman to the world and and you were human. So what happened on that especially dark winter night when you as a Paralympic gold medal hero said you were sick of being the greatest guy in the world to everyone and feeling, and I quote, a piece of garbage to myself? What led you to go to that hotel room and try to take your own life? You had just given an inspirational talk. You'd always been a fighter. What made you stop fighting that night? Don't answer right now. We're going to go on a short commercial break and we'll find out what happened when we come back. Back in a moment. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty, FM ninety six point seven. Paul, just before the break, I asked you what led you that night to try to take your own life. What made you stop fighting that night?
2: Yeah, it was my apartment. Actually, I lived uh, lived downtown Toronto when I got home, and I just I just felt that. This was it. This was the perfect day um, because of of the Bell Let's Talk to because of the message that I that I portrayed. I I couldn't live that lie anymore internally externally one thing internally another thing um and I, I planned the whole thing out because i worked in a funeral business for a while and i knew what it was like to pick somebody up so i wanted to respect my dad taught me respect uh it's one of the most important words and i got myself dressed in a way that i knew whoever did pick me up was going to be i was going to be respectful for them um i i, I did what 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 i had to do for my kids. It was such a hard thing. I wrote letters to, to all three of my kids. Um, and then I, I, I did it. I, I said enough. And it's not Judy that I wanted to die. And I've learned this recently in therapy is I didn't want to live anymore. And there's a big difference. A big I just difference. didn't want the pain anymore in my life. Yeah. Um, and and I people say, well, how could you do that to your family? it comes to a point that you're hurting so much. And this is important for the listeners. It comes to a point that you're hurting so much that you do not think about that while I was in the hospital, while I was in rehab. Oh my God. I thought about my kids and now grandchildren, I almost have five grandchildren that how could I, but at the time you're so desperate that you just, and, and I just set it up. I, I, I set the pills up. I, I took them. I do not like it says in the book. Uh, I don't remember calling 911. I don't, I don't, Remember the police or the ambulance. Um, I remember the next morning, my two daughters uh, mm-hmm. coming into the hospital and basically mm-hmm. saying, "You know, Dad, you're, you're not you're not leaving. You you need help." And me finally for the first time saying, "Yes, I'm staying." And I spent 17 days on the psychiatric floor, mm-hmm. which is not a lot of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a lot of issues in our medical system. That could be for another show. Um, but uh, but I did
1: survive. But you did survive. Thank goodness! Thank goodness for your family and for all of us. And you began working as a broadcaster, and which was sort of a natural progression for you for the CBC for TSN. And just briefly, what was it like seeing the world for the first time when you became clean?
2: Wow, that was um, moving into my daughters, and uh, and then meeting the people I've met and the and the relationships and the incredible and and finding people to get to know me as me, not, not Paul. Like when I go to meetings, they don't know Paul Rosen, the gold medalist. They mm. just know Paul Rosen. N- most of them don't even know me as Rosie. I'm, I'm just Paul, yeah. but it, it was that I don't need, I don't need external situations to make me happy. There's still hard days, really hard days. Um, but I'm learning how to cope and I'm learning how to ask for help every day.
1: Thank goodness. Around this time, you got an offer to play, to to go uh, for the Sledge Hockey World Championships, which were about to take place in the Czech Republic, and the IPC, which is the International Paralympic Committee, were doing its own broadcast of the event, and they wanted you to be the colour person for all 20 games. We talked about this in the green room before the show. And you saw this as a godsend, even though some of your family members were against it. What ultimately happened?
2: Well, that was, to me, that was one of the greatest moments to get a chance. It was only three months after I actually spent my 59th birthday in Ostrava in the Czech Republic. Um, my youngest daughter was, was terrified because this was what brought me in. This was that getting back to the Czech Republic where I was loved in the Czech Republic mm. broke many records. And her fear was everybody, going, oh, my God, it's Rosie, it's Rosie, it's Rosie. And then I'd get back into it. I was still only three months clean and sober. Mm. Um, my addiction doctor set everything up with doctors there. And I really didn't have a chance to do anything because I worked 20 games in six days. Hmm. I left my hotel room at six in the morning. I walked across the street to the arena. Hmm. I didn't get back in my hotel room to 11. I made sure all my meals were set where I was very safe. And then as soon as the games were over, I flew back to Toronto and right wow. back into uh, into therapy. Wow.
1: You also, and I think it was at that time, so correct me if I'm mistaken about that, you also went to Auschwitz, which was life-changing, that you said everyone has to go. I don't know if it was at that on that same uh, yeah. trip, but it yeah. was life-changing for you. What was that like for you?
2: That was one of the greatest, uh, the, the saddest, yes, greatest moments Um of my entire life. We had one day off. So it was a seven day thing. The six days I did the game, the one day off, uh, the, it was the most ironic thing because the producer, uh, was German, Hmm. great young man. And he said to me, listen, we're only 40 kilometers from Krakow, from Auschwitz. I'm going to go tomorrow. Do you want to come? And I was like, absolutely. And we went and we walked the grounds and everything. I don't know if you've had the chance to be there, but Everything is exactly the same as it was from when it was. And to to have a, a 59-year-old Jew and a 35-year-old German <laughs> walk through this wow. and realize that how did this happen and this could never happen again and just to feel the, 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 the strength of the people, of the Jews that were there and what they went through, <laughs> I, I think every Jew in the world should be there at one point. But every person should be able to see the hatred that was in this world.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting because you right off the top in the book mentioned Viktor Frankl, whose book Man's Search for Meaning I actually took with me recently on a trip. So I know the book very well. So I, I, I noticed you quoted him throughout, especially at the end of the book, at the beginning of the book. What did you discover through all of these lessons and life lessons and being at Auschwitz and, and your own personal journey about your purpose on this planet?
2: Oh, wow. Um, I think my purpose is to help others now. I think whether I live another day or I live another 30 years, I live through that. I have, I know so many people in the last year that have that have died through suicide, whether on purpose or just an accidental overdose because of the way the opioid crisis is right now. Um, but I live for a reason, and I'm a true believer in God. I'm a true believer that I'm here to help, to get people to understand that as hard as today is, tomorrow can be better if you're willing to do some work and to ask for help. That's the, the, the most incredible thing is ask for help. People are out there willing to help. I'm willing to help.
1: Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And you have, and you've helped so many people and there's so many wonderful stories. And I, I don't want to give away every story in the book because I want people to get the book, never give up. It's so wonderful, but there's so many wonderful stories of you giving talks, as I mentioned earlier, 1100 motivational talks. And once you met a a child that had cancer and had to shave his head and you shaved your head in solidarity. And there's just so many beautiful stories of, of, um, you're being outward focused and helping everyone. And, and also you've had to live through COVID, which after everything you've been through ha- has not been easy. And you have been sober for almost three years now. So congratulations on that. Thank you. What were some of the things that helped you get through this time and helped you embrace the second chance you were being given in life?
2: COVID has been has been very difficult because a lot of meetings have stopped. Um, you know, my uh, uh, my former partner, who's now uh, my best friend in the entire world and will be forever, and her family critical to the last two and a half years of, of my life. Uh, I, I spent more time with them than I did with anybody. And I, I think that's the most important thing going through this, having somebody who understands you. And, and that's what's so important to, to our relationship. We understood each other. We still do. We always will. And that saved my life. Wow.
1: Briefly, can you tell me uh, how you connected with sports writer, broadcaster, and hockey executive Roger Lajoie, who helped you find your voice and share this story, and what really ultimately led you to write this book?
2: So I've known Roger for years, uh, years ago when I did uh, different things in the community, in the sports community. We always bumped into each other. He worked for teams. He worked at the fan. I've I've been interviewed a million times. And uh, he was on my show two years ago, the Rosen Report. And uh, we were talking about different things. And uh, he said, why don't you have a book, Rosie? And I said, well, I've always wanted one. I can't find the right guy to do it with. And he said, well, let's talk. And we talked a couple of weeks later and 22 months later, the book is out.
1: Never give up. And he wrote many other books, including The Goal of My Life with legendary Canadian hero, Paul Henderson, and and, and so many more. You spend, as you've just mentioned, much of your life now helping people break down stigmas around mental health, suicide prevention, depression, and addiction. And you're determined to share your message of hope, recovery, and the idea of never giving up. What is the most important thing to remember when you feel like giving up?
2: Ask for help. that, that is, I'll say that over and over again. Do not sit, the worst days of my life was when I you know, sat in, in exile. I had my covers over my head and watching TV and I wouldn't answer the phone. And my family knew they're calling me, I'm not answering. That's the worst thing. Do not be alone, especially in COVID. COVID has made addiction and, 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 and the mental health worse than ever. Get outside, go for a walk, call somebody. There's 310 COPE is a line that I still use to this day. There's people out there, whether they know you or don't know you that want to help you.
1: That's wonderful stuff. uh, 310 COPE. We're going to put that also in the podcast information after the show airs. It's podcasted on all major podcasting platforms. So we'll, we'll put that information out there. So we ask everybody this question on the show. So of course, we're going to ask you who I think really gets it. What is bliss for Paul Rosen?
2: Oh, my God. Bliss to me now is, is family. You know, it's my grandchildren. It's knowing that I have a chance now for the things that I did as a father. I can redo them now as a grandfather. I can get my grandchildren to understand that you can make mistakes and you can overcome your mistakes. You can climb to the top of the mountain and you can fall down. But as long as you keep trying to climb back up, and take a deep breaths and know that there's incredible people and look up to this guy because somebody's watching and he's helping.
1: I love that. I love that. That makes me want to cry. That's beautiful. What's up next for you? What do you have coming up next in your career? <laughs>
2: I love to broadcast, and we're getting close to the Olympics and Paralympic Games. The Paralympic Games will uh, will start on March the fourth on the CBC. I will be doing the opening and closing ceremonies with the great, uh, absolute great Scott Russell, and I will be calling the six Canadian Games, hopefully a gold medal game. We haven't won since two thousand and six with Victor Frankel, who is a great young. Uh, uh, Broadcaster, He'll be doing the play-by-play. I'll be doing the colour. And for those of you that are worrying about Paul being in Beijing, I will not be in Beijing. We'll be doing it from Front Street, from the the CBC studios. I love doing the game. I love getting people to see uh, the incredible athletes in this world, whether Canada or anywhere else, who are athletes first, disabled second. I'm very strong about that. Not disabled athletes. Athletes who happen to be
1: disabled. It's wonderful. What is the best way for people to contact you, Paul, connect with you and get a copy of this wonderful book, Never Give Up?
2: They can email me at paulrosen577 at gmail.com. And then I'll let them know how to direct uh, pay me. And i in the Toronto area. I will deliver the book. Uh, Other than that, I will ship it. But everybody's book will get autographed and personalized. I'm very strong about that. I want people to have a message inside their book. And I'm so grateful to be able to, to get this message of hope out to people, Judy.
1: That's so wonderful, and I have to say that's true because right here it says to Judy, "Thank you for having me on your show. It means a lot." And there it is, right there. Uh, so that that's very very true. What about your social media? Are you do you have a presence on Facebook or Instagram or uh, a website?
2: I, I do. So my website is uh, www.paulrosen.ca. Uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, paulrosen um i'm available on linkedin i'm available on uh on facebook i'm not great at all of that but i have some people that are helping me (laughs) uh, and uh i am going to uh i'm very 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 soon i'm going to be on tiktok doing tiktoks about the book and about some motivational things Mm -hmm. um thankfully to uh to great people in my life who are showing me how to do that.
1: (laughs) That's so fantastic. Well, I really want to thank you so much, Paul Rosen, for being here today. It's really been an honor having you here.
2: Thank you. It's been an honor being on the show. And to everybody, find your bliss. It's incredible when you do.
1: Thank you so much. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and our featured artist, Sage Siegel, singer-songwriter, when we come back, back in a moment. We are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And we're now joined by emerging... 18-year-old pop singer Sage, the moniker of Sage Siegel. She's beautiful. She's brilliant, talented. She just released her second single in 2021 called Finish Line, which is now available on all streaming platforms via AWOL. The track will also be included on her upcoming EP, and it follows up her 2021 debut release, Homesick Feeling. Growing up in Toronto, Sage has been singing since before she could speak. Losing her father unexpectedly at the age of three and growing up with a younger brother with nonverbal autism, singing became a way for her to connect with her feelings and emote to music early on. At the age of 13, Sage auditioned for Mini Pop Kids, Canada's number 1 music brand for kids, making it past thousands of other children to become a Mini Pop Kid. She was chosen to sing, perform and record in studio for their Canada record label called Ktel. Over the years, Sage began sharing covers on YouTube and TikTok. That's how we really found her and in addition to writing original music, In 2021, she had a viral moment with her cover of As the World Caves In by Matt Maltese, amassing over 2 million views and 575K likes. And since then, she has garnered a following of 68,000, and it's constantly growing. Since beginning to write for her debut project this year, Sage has collaborated with so many artists and musicians, such as Paris Carney, Maggie Lindemann, B. Miller, and Drew Polovic, Friday Pilots Club Austin, just to name a few. She has received support from Popstar Magazine with a four page artist feature in their April 2021 digital magazine. That was fabulous. Alongside coverage from Track Life, Cage Riot, The Music Enthusiast, and Channel Sounds. Sage, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you so much for having me, Judy. Sage, as I mentioned a little bit off the top, I have to tell you that I've watched your Instagram page just blossom in the last two years. You're so prolific and you have such great content. Your covers of songs are so original and creative and your original music is just beautiful. And I also love that you sing live accompanying yourself on the piano and on the guitar, which makes it so authentic and raw. Can you tell us where this passion and drive for singing and performing comes from?
3: Well, I have been singing my entire life. Um, My mom likes to say that I have been singing since before I could speak. Um, And I was always such a social butterfly starting from such a young age. So I would sing and perform in front of family, at dinners, and any event that I could go to, you would just catch me singing my little heart out. Um, So my passion has definitely blossomed from a very young age, and I am very grateful that I was able to perfect it to the way that I like it and, you know, keep growing to what I am today.
1: That's so fantastic. I mentioned off the top that you lost your father when you were only three years old. How do you think this has impacted your singing and songwriting career?
3: I definitely think that going through such a big life change uh, was a very big deal for me, especially since I was so young. I didn't really, it didn't really affect me until I was a little older um, and I could, you know, understand what really happened. Um, but I definitely think that, yeah, I would say it definitely did have an impact. Um, my mom continuously tells me how much um, music also impacted my my dad um, and that when I was little, they would always take me in a stroller to all like the dances and everything. So I've just really been involved with music because of him, um, and she's also made sure to, you know, show me the, you know, relatively older music that he used to listen to, so I can get a feel for not just the new and upcoming music, but also the older, uh, the older crowd as well. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely say that my songwriting has definitely been altered because of this huge uh, life impact, but. Um, nice.
1: Yeah. So you're singing for your dad too, and he's watching all of this and he's so proud of you, I am sure. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Do you have any favorite artists from the past? Because our Zoomer crowd, that's the artists they love. So are there any that stand out for you that you love the most?
3: Um, I love uh, Come Sail Away by Styx. Um, that was one of the key ones that I remember. Um, and also Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown, which isn't as popular, but, um, definitely another one that has stuck with me.
1: That's so great. It is a, another major achievement, Sage, that you auditioned for the mini pop kids and got in because I think thousands and thousands of kids from all across the country auditioned. What was it like being a mini pop kid?
3: Oh, wow. It was a very, very fun experience for me. Um, I auditioned twice, actually, and got in the second time. And it was honestly just my kickstart to my recording career and my tour career. I traveled to Guelph and Barrie with them. So it was just a really amazing eye-opener to the whole singer-songwriter experience. And I'm really glad that I had, uh, you know, a group of fellow singers who were aspiring to do exactly what i was doing so i didn't really feel like i was alone and that i had some a group of people to rely on and talk to in times that i was nervous or unmotivated and it was all overall just a great experience
1: that's so much fun well today you're going to be singing your second release finish line from your upcoming ep before we get to the song can you tell us a little bit about the ep
3: yeah, for sure. Um, so I have a couple songs that I've been working on with uh, some producers that I've been connected with over COVID, um, and it's not a hundred percent complete yet. Um, but a lot of the songs are very natural, organic songs. Um, I like to, you know, I never, I make sure they never put as much, you know, auto tune or so much effects and all this stuff that I don't really need because I don't really feel a need for it and any kind of music just because i love the organic natural feel of music um and i think that for my ep especially um it's going to be very uh raw and uh yeah i'm very excited for you to hear it <laughs>
1: It's okay. I should also add for our listeners, for our listeners, that one of the reasons that Sage doesn't need any auto tune is she has perfect pitch and the most incredible voice. And I really, I really find that with you consistently. So she's being modest, but she she doesn't need it. Can you set up finish line for us? What's the song all about and what made you write it? Yeah,
3: so I wanted to create a motivational song that people could listen to to, you know, put them in whatever mindset that they really need to be in at that moment. Um, There's always the uncertainty of, you know, not knowing if you're going to cross that finish line, whatever that may be, um, which is why the song kind of emphasizes the fact that you may reach your goal, but there also may be some barriers in the way, and that's totally okay.
1: (laughs) So what, what fantastic advice and you're part of such a wonderful show. We just heard Paul Rosen on the program, the Paralympic athlete and who won a gold medal uh, for Canada and is was one of the greatest sledge hockey players. So this is just so in line with his interview as well, which is so fabulous. Well, I'm so excited to share this with our listeners. And what you're about to hear everyone now is Sage Siegel singing and accompanying herself on the piano. I think that's pretty cool, too. So let's have a listen to Finish Line. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Wow, Sage, that was so gorgeous. Will you come back again when your EP is out so we can hear even more? Oh my goodness, it would be my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we would love that. We would love that. So we ask everyone this question at the end of their interview. So we wanted to ask you, what is bliss for Sage Siegel?
3: Oh, well, um, being in my own mindset, being free of any problems plugging my earphones in, listening to all my favorite songs and just being in absolute Zen, maybe having a little fan on a little gust of wind. So I'm the perfect temperature, <laughs> maybe a little Starbucks beside me,
1: you know, <laughs> Ooh, good stuff. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> that sounds so good. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media?
3: Yes, yeah, so all of my so- social media platforms um are at that singer sage and on Spotify, Apple Music, all the streaming platforms, my artist name is Sage in all caps.
1: Oh, that's so awesome. Yes. Everyone, watch out for this wonderful artist cuz she really is headed for stardom. I have absolutely no doubt. It was so delightful to have you on the program today. Thank you Sage so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having me. <laughs>
1: Each week, we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. If you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer. The number one free meditation app. All you have to do is search up Judy Librach. And of course, you can follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank all of our guests, Paul Rosen and our singer Sage Siegel, for being on the program today. Thank you to Mag Ruffman, producer Siobhan Kiley. Associate Producer, Shelley Koskinen, Senior Editor, Haley Allegia, Editorial Assistant, Lauren Kaminsky, and Audio Producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here at Finding Your Bliss, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to never give up and take one step closer to finding your bliss.